Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people, and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a certain point of development, they create the new form and structure which becomes the butterfly. My guest today is the Reverend Cynthia Bourgeau, who is a modern-day mystic, Episcopal priest, writer, and internationally acclaimed retreat leader. Cynthia divides her time between solitude in her seaside hermitage in Maine and a demanding schedule traveling globally to spread the recovery of the Christian contemplative and wisdom paths, although I understand at the moment she's on holiday in Colorado in the mountains, which is great. She's a faculty member emeritus of the Center for Action and Contemplation and the founding director of an international network of wisdom schools, uniting classic Christian mystical and monastic teaching with contemporary practices of mindfulness and embodied presence. Cynthia's signature contribution to the Christian contemplative reawakening is focused on four main areas, centering prayer, the Christian wisdom tradition, including her book on the wisdom Jesus, the Christian inner and fourth way traditions, and the path of conscious love. So Cynthia, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. And I'm going to go straight into our first point of discussion, which is a shaping moment involving your choice of work. Well, thank you, David. And it's a delight to be here and to actually be able to have a, uh, a dialogue with you after the number of wonderful and, and respectful and helpful things you've done uh, with, with regard to my own books and reviews. And so it's, a, it's an honor to, to be in your presence and to, to share this time to chat with you. As I sort of wrestled with this, this question, I realized it's hard to get into it because uh, there was never a choice of work in the first place. There was never a moment when I chose this particular vocation as opposed to another. And in point of fact, I don't even know what, it, what work I actually do, <laughs> except to try uh, as best I can to, to stay awake above it to above it. So there was no kind of place where I chose I'm going to go down this path. And the other thing is that it's hard to impose a, a, a choice point on something which is just really a continuously unfolding landscape, like a, a coast. You go around this and you think it's a decisive moment, and it just opens up into another little bay and headland. And so it's been. But given those two things, I could say that, that early on, like when I was in high school, which for, I guess, the European crew is sort of preparatory school when I was 16, 17, 18. I had a series of teachers who woke me up radically to the beauty of art and to the profundity of the Western cultural lineage. And I had been up to that point raised in fairly mental religions and conventional spiritual training and education. And all of a sudden, particularly in music, I came alive and was just riveted by the, by the beauty and the experience of, of something that was just so extraordinarily rich and deep that you loved it for its own sake. 
And any any music in particular? Well, we we took in 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 the school something called uh, the music history and appreciation, and it ranged across the whole range from early Gregorian chant right up to Schoenberg and uh, John Cage, and so there was uh, you know it was basically a deep immersion in the Western, you know, admittedly uh, Western Europe that that eth- ethnocentric tradition, but it was so extraordinary that I can't single out one one point or another. I would say that the early liturgical music that I received there, listening to Gregorian chant and, and early polyphony, had a powerful effect on directing me back toward Christian worship and the beauty of the monastic tradition. But then there's Bach, and you can't beat him. I mean, Bach is the soul in a nutshell, and the great expansive movement of of Beethoven, which rolls into the compassion of Brahms. And it's the whole thing thundering like a mighty organ. That's marvelous. And and my own introduction to Bach was through my mother introducing me to Rosalind Turek on the piano, Yehudi Menuhin on the violin, and Albert Schweitzer on the organ. Um, uh, (laughs) And so that was was shaping for, for me. But you're right. I think music can express the sublime in a way that no other art is is capable of. Um, And and of course, the connection with worship um, was one that Bach made. Solo, solo, Dolia, Deo, Gloria. Yes. Yes. Which we sang when I was 16 in the chorus became a deep shaper of my own understanding of resurrection, you know, has always allowed me to do Christian theology from a different place, not a mental place, but from a, a consciousness place. With you know, when you take consciousness to mean with knowing, in other words, knowing by resonance. And I, I first learned that in music, and that actually comes to this, the incident I wanted to share with you, which was actually shaping for my whole life. Uh, by some strange coincidence, I wound up in the music school that Nadia Boulanger, the great teacher of 20th century musicians mm. every summer in in France at the at the Palais de Fontainebleau, which was one of uh, oh, other parts old hangout. We had this big whole wing in this 18th century building, and she conducted the summer schools for the brightest and best of American musicians, which I wasn't, but I was there on the coattails of my my choir teacher, who was. So one day. We were charging along and we were actually singing in this great old drawing room. We were rehearsing a movement from Christ Log in Todesband and that great Bach and mm. And these people are just fireworks, you know, every one of them is a soloist for a symphony orchestra somewhere. And Nadia Boulanger, at that point, about 85 years old and about five feet, if that, in walks into this great old drawing room, listens to what's going on wraps her hand hard on the piano, the Steinway there, and says, stop, stop. And she walks over to the piano and plays a C, a middle C, and then next to it, the note E. And it resonates around in this big old echoey room. And she says, that is a miracle. Resume. Oof. Oof. It what was an arresting a, moment. 
what was conveyed to me in that moment has taken the rest of my life to work out. I mean, you had all this brilliant fireworks of proficiency singing away, but without conscious awareness. And she called us right back to the conscious awareness that the source of beauty lies in resonance and the heart that deeply picks up that resonance and appreciates it as miracle. So, That's such an important metaphor, I think, um, the one of, of resonance, because we can feel that in the heart um, as well as understanding it in the mind. Yeah, exactly. And unless you do that, the feeling it in the heart, you've got nothing. And well, that is the essence of a, a mystical approach, I think. Yeah, well, I think it's just the, the, the consciousness and no till. The, the definition of the word says that it's talking about that kind of knowing. It is. It is. Let's go on to, I know you had a number of uh, influential mentors and teachers, and among them, I think, Thomas Keating. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your mentors. Well, I, yeah, I had a number of mentors. And aside from Nadia Boulanger there, who will always hold a place of, uh, of reverence in my heart, I bounced along, along a beautiful stream, a handoff of essentially monastic abbots and monks that, that, that bumped into my stream. And uh, there was certainly Thomas Keating was involved as the cornerstone of the whole movement. But there was an earlier fellow by the name of Bruno Barnhart who influenced me tremendously. He was, he was the prior at the Camaldolese Hermitage in Big Sur, California for 30 years and very much an intellectual as well as a deep spiritual thinker very wise. He finally wound up late, late in life writing three books, which people just are still sort of stunned about, but he never wrote anything until he was 75, I think, and, uh, but wise, a fountain of wisdom. And then on the other side, on this mentor's progression, is uh, Brother Rayfield Robin, who was an unknown monk in the community of, of Snowmass, but who actually was putting the pieces together in a way that permanently imprinted my being. And I would say that he's been the, the major teacher and continuing teacher in my life. That's so interesting, um, because these teachers, they, they help bring out what is intrinsically within us, and, but they, and they see it in a way that we almost don't see it immediately ourselves. Yeah, yes, exactly. And it's, and it's been really wonderful. And of course, there have been others along the way, and I won't even detain us here by going into the teachers that you actually begin to receive that are not in the body, but that, mm -hmm. you, understand, that you understand fully are living evolved presidents, presences that still are taking an interest in you and shaping your life, but just the, the mode of communication is at a far more subtle level. I learned this from Ray, Brother Raphael after he died. He died in 1995 and has continued to teach me for the 25 years or more since. But so you have to begin to learn to be ready to receive teaching from permanent individualities who are not incarnate in a body. So there have been a few of those in my life, Rafe, certainly now that he's no longer on the planet. And uh, the gentle hand of G.I. Gurdjieff has been always sort of wrapping and holding my back in a kind of funny way that I'm only gradually waking up to the, the extent of the love bomb there. I was going to ask you about that because you, in your recent book, um, you, you talk quite a lot about the fourth way. Yeah. And, and and the need 
for embodiment, embodiment of being, I think you could put it like that. Yeah, yeah. And I think his teaching is uh, actually takes us farther along that route than almost anything uh, that I know. And, and granted, it's cumbersome to get into it because he had to develop his own logic and his own way of phrasing it. And some of the phrasing is deliberately intended to throw people off track and to call the question on there what he called the Bantam literary language uh, of intellectual culture. But I've come to believe more and more that his teaching, which is usually classified as this kind of esoteric Valdiral, is essentially the very earliest run up in the West on trying to teach what would eventually take shape as mindfulness. And oh, what an interesting connection. Yes, yeah. I mean, being the, the witness uh, and being self-aware um, yeah. is, is, is the common element, I think. You're right, and changing your state of being and changing the state shape of your mind. He's basically talking about all these things in 1914 in a language he had to invent, which he didn't speak because his native language was not anything that they used in Western, Western Europe. But once you see that, it cuts to the chase and it eliminates a lot of this tendency that, that Gurdjieff put into his work, admittedly, and certainly his followers picked up, of treating it like an intellectual puzzle. And his teaching on how to access ever more subtle sensation, which allows you to connect reliably with assistance coming to you from unembodied realms. And to do this not out of speculation and fantasy and visualization and sentimentality, but to be clear, I think is extraordinary teaching as we begin to really, as a planet, reach out to implore assistance from realms wiser and more coherent than our own. Goodness, we need that. And I was wondering, did you ever come across Jean de Salzman? Oh, yeah. Um, at all. Um, because oh, yeah. my friend Ravi Ravindra, who po you probably know, oh, yeah. has written he was a wonderful book. in called... Halifax for many years. Uh, well, yeah. he, he wrote a wonderful book called Heart Without Measure, which yeah. is all about Jean de Salzman. Right, yeah. No, Ravi was my teacher when I sought out the work and uh, in 1987, convinced that I should, that I needed to follow it more systematically after having, you know, been knocked off my feet by In Search of the Miraculous, the gateway book to it. So uh, I was assigned by the New York Foundation to become Ravi's student in Halifax. How amazing. I had no idea. Yeah. And so, so for, for several years, I trooped up there once a month because it was quite a run from where I was living in Maine. And Ravi, uh, Ravi taught me, which basically meant he had to completely break me down and reform me because at that point, I had been very, very well formed in the Bantan literary language. I was a good scholar and I used my very, very sharp tool of the mind to solve everything. But I didn't know where my feet were, which is what he, he took upon He put you on the ground. To, yes. to remind me and to sort of gently remind me when I was... Pretending to ask a question, I was actually holding forth in paragraphs. <laughs> Interesting. Well, let's move on now to some yeah. key books that uh, that uh, have shaped your your life and thinking. I, I, yeah. I never ask my guests anymore a book because almost all of them have got multiple books that have been important. 
Well, I'm glad you've come to that because when I when I saw a book on the sort of uh, prompt questions, I I realized well there isn't a book that the, the books are sort of like an underground river, and every once in a while you come to the next one, and and I don't read books the way most people read, uh, like like you got to get the next thing. I would say I would be able to put the books that have shaped my life in a milk crate. And uh, there haven't been more than 20 of them, and I carry them along everywhere I go. But when I've reflected on the ones that are most important in the sequence, I would say they start with In Search of the Miraculous, which is what I referred mm. to a little earlier, which is P.D. Uspensky's uh, take on the early teachings, the, the systematic teachings of Gurdjieff. That was thrown casually into my car by a friend of mine uh, who never owned up to the fact uh, when uh, and said, oh, I saw the word miraculous in the title and thought you might like it. But it it awakened me to the whole idea of, of consciousness rather than simply mystical high. Uh, and I just, it, the, the categories, the everything resonated. So that was the first book. And it, it basically set the course toward conscious integral awareness rather than, you know, mystical devotion. I will say along the way, uh, you know, Jacob Burma became a very powerful influence on me, the 17th or 16th century, late 16th, early 17th, mystical visionary from, uh, from Eastern Germany, the shoemaker, who the heavens opened and he received these extraordinarily cosmological profound teachings which became the, the foundation of my own experience of the, of the world, of, of the metaphysics there. He basically furnished the metaphysics I work out of to this very day. More recently, I'm just gonna jump through a whole bunch of really good books that I, I, I passed through and, and all left their deposits in my life. But the thing that called me right up short, fairly recently, 2020, was Jean Gebster's the ever-present origin. Oh, how interesting. And and it's funny, Gebser was one of these people that was uh, in there in, in, in setting up the original sort of foundations of what's evolved today as integral theory. And, and Kim Wilbur has extensively borrowed and built on his foundation and tinkered with his map and essentially added a Buddhist tier to the top of it. But when I actually read Gebser, in the original, which is not easy because the original book is 555 pages, mm. very, very small print in English and very, very turgid, turgid um, German translated into even more stuffy English. But nonetheless, the book brought me full circle back to those early experiences I had of just being lost in the beauty and depth and wonder of Western culture. He restores the, the, the sense of evolution and the evolutionary map of consciousness to primarily a collective human journey of evolution. And what Wilbur tended to do was to privatize it into a personal journey that they all got interested in the fact that, that the journey of civilization is recapitulated in the developmental curve in each each individual, and they all took it that way. But Gebser keeps it really strongly. Look at what civilization has gone through in this, and his profound study of the dimensions of consciousness of the next 
thing on our plate being not an extension of time, but an intensification. And his ability to, to really squarely lay out the, the conceptual squirrel cage in which mm. our, our middle rational mind is trapped so that as long as we're using the same operating techniques and the same perspective, we're going to wind up with the same disconnected sectional picture. And, Indeed. And it just blew me out of the water because I, I looked at, you know, it was one of the reasons if I had, uh, if truth be told, that I decided to move to emeritus status with the CAC because I really felt like the inquiry was going on within the squirrel cage and that the self that was being derived and that was being assumed to conduct the inquiry into truth and justice uh, was exactly the self which needed to be dismantled, refashioned and folded in to this new way of seeing, which was neither being taught nor, nor respected. And that sent me back with renewed vision and respect to the Gurdjieffian tradition and the realization that you've got to tinker with, you know, you've really got to, to change the ground of perception before you're going to change the results. Yes, and I think this is this is really the the one of the key messages of Ian McGilchrist's work um, that we've got stuck in the sort of left hemisphere analytical, and and we need to to go back and recover the the imaginative and the intuitive, which after all. You know, science and all creative activity is based in, in exactly on the, that kind of way of knowing, and the yeah. imaginal. You know, you're 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 very strong on the imaginal. I know. Well, my only complaint about Gilchrist is that he still keeps it located in the mind, left brain and right brain, and everything that I've come to learn from Gurdjieff, from the from the hesychastic mystics of Mount Athos, is that. It involves putting the mind in the heart. And this, this is not a metaphor. This is an actual refers to a different system of perception, which is, uh, is centered in some sense. For the Orthodox, it was centered in the region of the torso. What Gurdjieff does is to take it even deeper and place it in a full three-centered awareness. And it runs a system which is the basis for restoring the right brain. So it's not just pitted against the left brain, but it, it, it becomes a fully embodied knowing so that everything down to our little left toe is involved in and directly responsible for running a system of, of awareness that can be integral and wholly present in the moment and perceive a whole dimension things. I wanted to mention the last book, and this is a little plug, but it, it puts it together. It's a brand new book uh, by a fellow named John Teasdale called What Happens in Mindfulness, just published this year. Uh, John Teasdale is a retired professor at, uh, at Cambridge in the UK okay. and was part of the team along with, uh, with Mark Williams uh, and John Kabat-Zinn and others to essentially develop cognitive-based mindfulness training. The, I mean, they're big players, but what John has done in this beautiful book is taken the Western mind's genius to be able to analyze the systems theory. He's applying systems theories to the brain 
to look at what happens when people become mindful. So he, he, is, he takes it away from that slightly smug, you know, oh, it's just better to eat the orange mindfully. He says, well, this is why, because this is what happens when the brain does, when you eat it mindfully. And he's able to show it chapter and verse in a way that's just really, really, to me, convincing. And it, it ties together Gebser and Gurdjieff and mindfulness and Christian mystical insight in a way that I take as a particular gift of an, of an unsung genius. John is, John is now 78. And well, I will is... order that for review, and I'm also going to pass your yeah. message on to Ian, which I think he will be very receptive to. Yeah, um, yeah. And his work has got a different angle. I wanted to, to talk a little bit about how you became interested in the wisdom tradition and, 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 your, and the books that you've written on the wisdom of Jesus and, and on Mary Magdalene? Well, it grew like everything grows. And the point, the point of departure is that I, I, I had these two, two pillars that were in place by the time I was, uh, let's, let's fast forward to about 1997 and I am uh, on assignment to British Columbia to, to form a new organization called the Contemplative Society. And on the one hand, one pillar is the Benedictine tradition. I've been living at St. Benedict's Snow Mass. Uh, the whole beautiful aura et labora prayer and work rhythm of the Christian mystical tradition uh, lived in monastic life. And then on the other hand, I had the whole Gurdjieffian pillar that was the, the conscious mindless presence. My teacher, Rafe, that I referred to earlier, had shown me how to bridge it. He says that if you go mindless in the monastic tradition, it can't help you. Uh, you know, hmm. he says, spend all your life walking up the stairs into the chapel. And uh, so he taught me how to fuse Gurdjieff and the Benedictine tradition. And he just did it in his being. So when I got up to British Columbia to help find this, we, we developed our first wisdom retreats. And we didn't know what to call it. Shall we call it a wisdom school or a mystery school? But but Jean Hausman already had a mystery school and she was doing a different thing with it. So we decided to call it a wisdom school, which deliberately used the Benedictine daily rhythm, aura at labora, prayer and work, the meaningful intentionally cycling between activities in the day, trying to bring a similar quality of consciousness to them all. We combine that with the Gurdjieffian tools for self-observation, for non-identification, so that people could actually see themselves and learn to be aware. So that's how it started. And it became, for me, a, a teaching in itself. And that opened the gates to me, to looking at Jesus as a wisdom teacher, and then to see when I had access to the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and others, that this was the thread we were looking at. And this was the elixir that had gone out of the Christian transmission that was at the heart of what Jesus was doing. So that's what it is. I, I have not dipped deeply and primordially into any of the bodies of information. The Sufi tradition has explored the imaginal, but from a very kind of even Arabic cognitive standpoint, uh, the, the Christian tradition has its own sort of concept of wisdom, which is basically based in the wisdom books of the Old Testament. And for me, it, it really means the, the conscious transformation 
within a devotional, within an intentional devotional framework. Framework, yes. Yeah, yeah. Because for me, the key piece is with it, until that devotional piece kicks in, the capacity for adoration, the capacity to, to surrender yourself to that which is beautiful, uh, that which claims your heart utterly, your evolution will not jump across that integral divide because it takes the heat of adoration to catapult you across. And you can't do it with a more intellectual approach. I think it's the fly and the ointment with Ken Wilbur's and the various integral theory approaches. You finally have to bow the knee of the heart, melt the knee of the heart, basically fuse the whole bloody thing. Yes, I, I got a very strong sense of this um, by being in charge um, a couple of weeks oh, yeah. ago, you know, during the assumption and the 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 veneration of the of the Divine Mother and, and the Black Madonna. Um, and it, it carries a very strong energy. And I, and I also think that this surrender is really a key. And I was reading a book by Connie Zweig, which quotes um, Thomas Keating about surrendering to being, especially in in this phase of life, in, in, in one's 70s. Um, yeah. that, there's, there's that being work to be intensified, I think. Exactly. And, and surrender really will only deliver its full moxie in a personalized relational field. And, and, and to put that simply, in a, in a theistic tradition, surrender will, will reach its, its quintessential flourishing when you have a, a God, a Jesus, a Mary, a beloved, who you can give yourself to completely melting in love. It pulls in that deep, capacity of love to transform everything. And so it's very interesting with Thomas. I'm writing a book right now, Thomas Keating, on his late emergence. And right to the end, Thomas carried this double track on God on the one hand, and you'll see it right up to the very, very, very last teachings he ever gave us, which then his last teaching was his death. In the one hand, he is completely aware of God as simply a placeholder name for the divine, originating, dynamic, uh, ever-replenishing, wormhole, wellspring of consciousness that's moment-to-moment dynamically recreating the field and that transcends all form, name, identity. And he's completely aware of that. And at the other hand, he completely to the end keeps using this language of consenting to God as God is and bowing to God's will and, and shaping yourself to God's, God's will. And he'll sometimes call God Izzy at the end. Charming <laughs> yes. because he is what he is. So, but you see this wonderful need to personalize, which is partly, I think, to communicate with his audience, which is still very his primary audience is still very theistically grounded, but it's partly, it's more than that, because I would say it's almost his own habitual default position that he relates to God to the end, deeply and centrally as daddy, as beloved, as thou. Sounds so beautiful. I, I was wondering, Andrew Harvey, who was at Church last week, he was, he was talking about his recent book, <laughs> Um, yeah. on Hadovich. Of I might have known it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and also his, um, 
uh, he he quoted uh, some extraordinary passages from Elizabeth of the Trinity. Yeah. I don't know whether you've come across her. Oh, work. yeah. 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 No, it's amazing. And, and Thomas loved the begins to the end, which this tradition was from. These women hit some off the charts non dual realizations. Mm. Just off the charts. I mean, some of the high water of Christian mystical non dual utterance is by these women mystics. And Thomas was totally intrigued by that, along with what he found in St. Therese, Therese of Lisieux, as he moved into his own effort to dialogue between God as eternal ground and God as, as loving father. Yes, thank you for that. And we're coming towards the end now. So, so my last two questions are, are, is there a proverb you live by or do you have a favorite quote that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I always liked the one that Rafe gave me at the end. He, he said, I want to have enough being to be nothing. Oh, that's so wonderful. I love it. it enough being to be beautiful. nothing. And it's he, the fullness he, and the emptiness at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And he realized it took the fullness to, to sustain the emptiness so that you didn't finally default and run back to look at me. I'm nothing. <laughs> yes, nothing and the ego, the ego down. strikes yeah. again. The ego appropriation of nothingness. Uh, so that's that's one I've tried to live by. Uh, that you know, there's a bunch of others. Rafe also taught me about last year's language, which he borrowed from T.S. Eliot, but which he turned to ballpark advantage because he he says, you know, you can't cast it in stone and then look backwards to find out where you're going. You have to always be prepared that next year's language is going to be part of the shaping of what you perceive. And uh, once you set out from port, you can't keep looking back at it. No, very true. Very true. And Cynthia, is there any advice you'd give uh, your younger self? Oh, my younger self. I guess I, I would just want to remind my younger self to gently let go of the grasping. It's been the, you know, the double-edged sword of, of aim, intention, uh, grasping that allows you to pull yourself forward to set a life goal and run toward it. But that very process in your brain is eventually going to cancel out your ever achieving what you really want. And that at some point you have to work on changing the shape of the mind and only then will it all become clear. So I would tell my younger self, don't rush it. You can't force feed it because you have to acquire enough life experience in the shape that your mind is in, in order enough being from that thing to, to take the plunge into being nothing. But, but do know that this inscrutable thing that the mystics talk about, about the awakening, the grace, the enlightenment moment is there. And when you become ready in your finite being to sustain it as a beautiful blossoming and not as a destruction, it will bear fruit in your being. So work toward that in confidence and hope, but don't turn it into another aim you're trying to achieve. Indeed. That's the first half of life agenda. Cynthia, thank you so much for such a rich sharing um, of your life and thinking and being. Um, I've hugely appreciated it, and I'm sure our listeners will too. Well, thank you, David. It was a pleasure to chat with you. And again, an honor. Thank you for thinking of me. 